find Acts 17 and put your thumb there, and then the other one's going to be Genesis 1, so that's going to be easy to find uh, right there at the beginning. And so um, as we begin to dive in this morning, we're starting a new three-week series as we head towards Easter called The Three Circles. Talked last week about this, how this is a campaign that we're doing in our church that the sermon series the next three weeks will focus on this, and then in small groups starting the Sunday after Easter, we'll be focusing on to train you and how to use the three circles that you're going to see this morning. But what we're going to do the next three weeks is to do a deep dive into this topic of God's design, our brokenness, and the gospel. And to understand how we can take God's story and the story of the gospel and the story that the Bible's telling, the big meta narrative of the Bible, and how that fits with our life and how we can take it and share that story with others. I hope many of you have been praying this week for God to raise up laborers to send out into the harvest field. Uh, probably a lot of, I heard some alarms going off this morning at 9.38. I think I was uh, running around like my hair was on fire at that time. Uh, but I've enjoyed that pause to stop and to pray. And also, it'll, you'll catch yourself in your other prayer times, whenever that is, thinking to pray for that just because you've made yourself pray for that uh, during the course of the week. So thank you for doing that. I hope you'll continue to do that as uh, we continue in this series and, and get ready for this, this training here in a few weeks. You know, the church ultimately is not really an event. There's an event that takes place. We gather together on Sundays and worship, right? We have to gather together. Um, we're, we're the church when we gather together, right? But we also live scattered uh, in our communities. We are a missional community. Uh, God has given a mission to the church. We, it, in fact, I would say, as someone else has said before me, that God's mission has a church more than God's church has a mission. The mission's been around longer than the church has been around. The mission began all the way back in Genesis. Uh, the mission began all the way back when God said he was going to send someone into the world through the seed of Eve who would conquer the enemy. The mission was all the way back in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham to go to all the nations. The, the, the emphasis of the mission is throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And then the church is born in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, before Jesus ascends into heaven after his death, after his resurrection. He looks at us and he tells us to go into all the world and to make disciples. He tells us to do that by teaching them everything he taught, to baptize them. And he tells us that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. That's what he charged the church with. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given us a mission to take the gospel to a lost world and to make disciples, to help people trust and follow Jesus. For somebody to be a disciple, they have to hear the gospel, can't get saved without hearing it. They have to understand the gospel. Then they have to believe the gospel. And the moment genuine repentance and faith takes place, they become a new person, and then the path to discipleship begins to take place where they begin to grow and mature in their faith. But that doesn't happen apart from initially hearing and believing the gospel. We can't make disciples if we don't share the gospel. We can't disciple people that aren't saved. And so these things go together. As we, if we're going to make disciples, step one is leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer this morning, God has brought you into his family to send you out into his world. He's reached you to reach others. He saved you to spread and share the gospel. And in sharing our faith, this is what I want you to understand this morning as we begin this, we can no longer assume people have a working knowledge of the Bible. You know, there was a time in this country you could kind of assume that. 
especially in certain parts of the country where I'm from in Alabama, you could, you could pretty much assume that. Everybody went to church at some point, went to VBS or Sunday school or something growing up, and had some sort of working knowledge of the Bible. And you could walk up at one time in this country to most people on the street and say, do you believe in God? And they would say, yes. Well, what God do you believe in? And they would say, the God of the Bible. And they had a working knowledge of the Bible and Adam and Eve and Jesus and things of that nature. But as time has gone on, we have become an increasingly secular society and people just don't have, where if 10 is saved and having the knowledge of salvation, right? We had a lot of people that were maybe at 7s and 8s and had a working knowledge of the Bible. Nowadays, we have a lot of people that are 0 and 1 and 2 and 3. And we have to start at square one. You can't just walk up to them and say, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? They say, what in the world are you talking about? What's a Lord? Why do I need a Savior? Jesus. I mean, I've heard about Jesus most in this culture, but you would even find people here that in our, in our city probably that couldn't even explain the gospel to you that don't even ha haven't heard that clearly. I've shared the gospel with people before and said, have you heard that message right here in our city when they've said, not like that. I've not really heard it like that. In, in, in clarity, I've understood who Jesus is. I've, I've kind of heard the nuts and bolts of some things, but not a clear gospel presentation. We can no longer assume these things. And so we have to be willing to begin at the beginning. And the good news about that is you find that in the Bible. When Paul wrote Romans and the great gospel treatise where he goes and he just explains the gospel in depth, like I've said before, what I believe is the greatest book ever written, he starts in chapter 1 with the very beginning in creation. And in Acts chapter 17, we'll read you a passage here this morning, just a springboard into Genesis. The Apostle Paul walks onto the scene in Athens, a very secular society, a very pluralistic society where they had lots of gods and lots of worship and lots of things going on. And the Bible, he was just passing through. He wasn't even there really to do his missionary work. He was there waiting on his team to get there while they went. It was like layover, right? He was like on a layover in our terminology, right? He was just kind of waiting, spending the night quickly in a hotel, then he was out the next day. It was all that he was there for. But as he's in the city and he sees all these false gods and all this worship taking place by these very intelligent people who are very proud of their intelligence and of their religious background, the Bible says he's grieved in spirit. He's, he's afflicted in spirit. It begins to bother him as he looks around. And this is what he begins to say as he gets in a very public place where people would hear him and he begins to preach in the public square. In Acts 17, starting in verse 22, about halfway through that verse, he says, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. It's in quotes. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breadth, and everything. See, Paul understood something. As he walked around and he saw these people, they, were, they had this temple erected to a God they knew not of, basically. They didn't understand. And he goes, let me tell you about the God that you don't understand is actually, let's talk about the real God. Because he can't live in that temple. Because he actually is the creator. He's not a creation. He's not a figment of your imagination. He's not something you come up with. He's not something that serves you. He's, he's God. He's creator. He gives you life. And what Paul understood is what we need to understand. There was a lot about those people's lives in Athens that didn't make sense apart from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. Listen, there's a lot about your life this morning that simply doesn't make sense outside of Genesis. 
There's a lot about our world today that doesn't make sense outside the first three chapters in Genesis. That's why we revisit it from time to time. The world is a very broken place full of broken people. We see that all around us. Every day you have conversations around news events, personal tragedies, personal struggles, and issues that are the result of brokenness that is in our world that people are living in every day. Just this week we saw a terrorist attack in London. We live in a broken world. We, we know that's not right. We know there's something wrong with that. We know this world's not perfect. We see the crime. We see poverty. We see injustice taking place. We see torn relationships. We see divorce. We see loneliness. We see isolation. We see people mistreating people. We see all sorts of evidence of the broken fabric of our society. But we also look around the world and we see a world full of beauty. We see a world full of creative order and design, a world obviously designed by God himself. We look at the depth of the ocean and the fact that there are things in the ocean that we haven't even seen. Every now and then they'll find something. They'll be like, nobody's ever seen this before. Somebody will think, well, why would God stick that way down in the bottom of the ocean if we weren't even going to be able to see it? Well, because it wasn't for you. It's for him, right? For his glory. The earth is just full of things that we're still discovering, right? It's a beautiful, incredible creation. And the book of Genesis, especially those first three chapters, points us to the answers to questions that we intrinsically ask, that humanity intrinsically asks about God, about ourselves, about the meaning and purpose of life. It helps explain why life can be so beautiful and at the same time so incredibly painful. It helps explain why people can do incredible heroic things and, and, and come up with incredible inventions and at the same time people can lie and cheat and steal and kill. It helps us understand why marriage can be such an incredible blessing and at the same time why so many of them end in divorce. The first three chapters of Genesis make sense of all of that. It helps make sense of our life. God has a purpose. He has a design for human life. We see this from the very beginning. And by looking at the beginning, we can begin to answer life's questions as we look at God's design for life in the universe. Look with me, Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to read to you the first two verses. should be on the screen for you. First two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I love that the first four words of the Bible are in the beginning God, right? Those are the very, that's right out of the gate. And the Bible doesn't try to explain God. It doesn't try to argue for his existence. It just assumes it. It just tells you he is in the beginning God. Not in the beginning, let me try to explain to you how God exists. No, in the beginning God, right? It's, it's there. He's there. His existence is simply stated that he simply is. And when you read the creation account, God's at the very center of the whole creative story. His, he, his name, he is mentioned 28 times in the creation account before man's ever mentioned once. It's a God-centered story. God's at the center of the universe. Not you, not me, not us. So three things that God's design reveals that will help us in personal evangelism, will help us in understanding life. Number one, God's design reveals the unavoidable reality of God. God's design reveals the unavoidable reality of God. And this helps answer a question that people ask all the time, and that is this. Is there a God? And we go further. What's he like? Who is he? And we begin to see those things in Genesis. We see that he's creator. 
says, in the beginning, God created, bara. That, that Hebrew word is only used in the Bible to speak of God creating. It's, God's always the one that's doing the creating when that word is used. And we see that God created, the, the phrase that we use is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was, he started with nothing. It was, there was just God. There was literally nothing else. And it says, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. In other words, it's a summary verse to tell us, in the beginning, God created everything. Everything on earth and everything in heaven. And we see here, God creating. We see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was present as well. John 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning, see the connection? He's, John is echoing Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And John 1 goes on to reveal to us that word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So from the very beginning, we see God is the creator. We see his existence is just stated. And we see he's a triune God. When you start putting the pieces together, you see there's one God existing in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's no, sometimes people come up with, oh, I've got this way. It helps me understand the Trinity. I think of it like this. And 9.9999 times out of 10, it ends up being some subtle heresy that we just don't realize. People say, oh, it's like ice and it's like water and it's like vapor. They can't, okay, that's not a good illustration of it. I used to think that would work. I realized it was, like, that's not, that doesn't at all explain it, right? When there's ice, there's, there's no water and then there's vapor and then there's no water. God's all three at the same time. One God, three persons, always existing. Not modalism. He's not one minute, he's the Father. Then he comes over here and he's the Holy Spirit. And then he comes over here, he's Jesus. One God, three distinct persons, right? The triune God is the creator of all things. And we see the earth is without form and void. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible, written for children but great for adults, says this. It's like a mother hen hovering over her eggs expectation something's about to happen right and then we see action begins and we're not going to read it all but as you go through chapter one it's god said god said god said god said and things begin to happen he begins to create things and place things in order and bring organization to what this when you read in verse two this without form and void this this earth at this point that's lacking content that's lacking organization and he begins to create and organize and the truth is the very fact that there is creation reveals that there is a creator now some people don't want to line up with that we don't have time to do a deep dive into apologetics this morning but the bible tells us that create that the creation itself is explanation for the existence of god the beauty of a sunset smell of a flower the mystery of fire the depth of the ocean Point us to a creator, not a happy accident. Humanity, fingerprints, DNA, just how life works. The fact that the earth can't be any closer to the sun and no further away. All these things are just explaining, to, just showing that there's a God. And it's like, if you leave a kid in a room alone for 10 minutes and you come back and the room's a wreck and you say, what happened in here? And the kid says, I don't know what you're talking about, nothing happened. Which is a very kid thing to say, right? up until like, I don't know, the age of 25 or so, right? It's just like, I don't know. I don't know. And you're like, something obviously happened because I have eyes, right? 
Nobody would argue with that. There, there's an effect, so somewhere there's a cause. And in the same way, the Bible wants us to see that you can look around at creation and you know there's a cause. Now, people might disagree over what the cause is. But all those other things are a way more leap of faith than believing that there's an intelligent creator, that there is God, who, all-powerful God, who created. Listen to what Romans 1 says. The Apostle Paul, I told you in Romans 1 he used creation. should be on the screen for you. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. It goes on to say the problem is people suppress the truth. They refuse to believe what they can obviously see. But Paul's saying you can look at creation and learn about God's existence. We can see his greatness and we can see his goodness. We see his greatness in the power to create with his very word. We see mountains spring up. Why? Because God said so. And at the same time, we see his goodness in that he created and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Because a good God creates good things. And then he cares for and takes and provides for and looks after his creation and, and sets up an environment where earth can work, <laughs> where it can happen. He's a great God. He's a good God. God's design reveals the unavoidable reality of God answering that Human question of, is there a God? Who is he? What's he like? On the sixth day, God created man. We're going to fast forward. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Second thing God's design reveals. God's design reveals the unique identity of man. The unique identity of man. Answering the question that people ask about identity. Who am I? Who am I? What's my place in this world? Who am I? Well, we see in Genesis, you're made by God. You and your neighbor are the creation of God. Made in his image. The phrase is imago Dei. One of the most important pieces of theology in all of the Bible. And one that we battle in our culture every day. Because people don't understand and believe and hold to Imago Dei that people are created in the image of God. People are mistreated. People are murdered. Babies are killed in the womb. Poverty goes unattended to. Racism happens. All these things spring from a rebellion against Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where it says you're created in God's image. If they're image bearers, then all those things are unacceptable. We even see that gender is right there at the very beginning. He created them, male and female he created them. It wants us to see specifically that God cares about gender. It's God's idea. And he's created us distinct and unique. And we each are both equally created in the image of God. And both genders reflect and image God in ways that are very important. So what does it actually mean 
to image God or to be made in his likeness. Well, the, the text is actually giving us a clue when it says, in God's image, after our likeness. That likeness, likeness. We're, there are ways we're like God is one of the things we need to understand. Now, there's a lot of ways we're not like God. A sin, sin aside, because that hasn't even happened yet, right? Sin aside, we're not omnipotent. You're not all-powerful. Try it sometime. It will not end well. You're not all-knowing. Some of us think we are. We're not. There's a lot of ways we're nothing like God. But I love how Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, great book, says we resemble and represent God. That's how he sums up the Imago Dei, the image of God. Well, how do we resemble him? Well, morally, we have a conscience and we're morally accountable before him. You have a conscience. That's God's fingerprint on you. You have a spirit. Spiritually, we have a spirit, and God is spirit, and we can pray, and we can have a relationship with God. Mentally, we can reason and think. We can dream great dreams and come up with incredible ideas. And relationally, we can have a relationship with God. We can walk in relationship with others. Being made in God's image means people are made to resemble God in some ways so that we can represent our Creator as His stewards on the earth. This makes every life on this planet valuable and accountable. We're valuable. Your life is valuable to God because you're created by God in His image with very distinct purpose. Every person has dignity, value, and worth. Every per person from the moment of conception matters to God and is a life. It's intrinsic. It's just there because... The Creator says so. His fingerprints are there in His image. I've used this illustration before, but if I took a $100 bill this morning and I scribbled all over it and I rubbed it in some dirt and I spit on it and I wadded it up real good, right, maybe put some tears in it and I held it up and I said, this isn't worth two cents. Who wants it? Everybody, I'll take it, you know. I'll get past the germs. It's 100 bucks. Unless you just don't need it. I'd take it, right? Like, sure, I can think of a lot of things I can do with 100 bucks. You don't think it's worth two cents. I know it's worth $100. Here's why. There's a higher authority than Josh Malone that has assigned the authority to that dollar. So I can think it's worth two cents, and I can treat it like garbage, but the United States of America has printed on there that that's worth 100 bucks, and they outrank me. And in the same way, being created in God's image tells us that a higher authority has assigned our value. You say, well, I don't feel valuable. It doesn't matter how you feel. I mean, that's unfortunate. We want you to feel better than that. <laughs> but God says you're valuable. God ascribes a higher authority than me and you. you. say, I think that person's a piece of trash. You're not thinking like God. God has placed their authority. You say, well, my parents told me this growing up. They talked to me like this. Well, God says you are deeply valuable and created in his image and he has assigned your value. But we're also responsible to him. We're accountable to him. We're stewards. Since God made us, since God has given us a job to do, to go and subdue the earth and exercise dominion, we're accountable to him. He's going to hold us responsible, accountable for how we live our lives. Look at the text. We're the ones who are dependent. Adam and Eve were the ones who were dependent. They were the one formed and given life. They're the ones subordinate. You look at verse 28. Who's the one giving commands? God. Who's the one receiving them? Adam and Eve. We're accountable to God. And it makes sense if he's our creator. 
You know, in our home, or in any home, you understand that the children are accountable to the adults. Nobody argues that, right? When we push against, when they push against that, we call that rebellion. We hope they don't push against too hard or begin to out, you know, they start to outnumber you and things of that nature, and all of a sudden you think they're going to take over the house maybe, right? And as they get older and they become teenagers, right? but we understand the parents are in charge, right? There's an accountability there. We, we get that, right? At work, you get employer, employee. We get that all through life. We get the idea that someone's in charge, somebody we're accountable to for how we do our job, for how we function in the home for children. And doesn't it make sense? It makes absolute sense. How much more responsible are we for the one who breathed life into our life, who created us and formed us? What's this mean for you? It means no matter what you think about yourself, you matter. And it also means that you and I will give an account for how we live our life. How we live, the choices we make, the decisions we make matter because we will give an account to God. Now, Genesis 1 is a flyover of the creation of man. Genesis 2 is the deep dive into the details of how it happened. Look at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 9, and then I'm going to read 15 through 25. These are the generations of the the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming, going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds, and to the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man and made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The third thing God's design reveals is the ultimate purpose of all of life. God's design reveals the ultimate purpose of all of life. Answering that question that at some point everybody asks, which is, why am I the first thing we got to understand is that we're made for God. We're made for relationship with God. Listen, Adam and Eve, when you read this, they would not have imagined existence apart from relationship with God. It, 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 it just wouldn't have made sense to them. God formed them and breathed life into them, giving them the gift of life. 
God planted a beautiful garden and put the man in it, providing for him an incredible environment. God gave the man responsibility over the garden, providing for him something to do and work. God gave the man friendship and marriage, providing for him community and that gift of marriage and friendship that we see. And everything about Adam's life was tied back to God and God's provision. It wouldn't have made sense apart from God. Adam had nothing apart from God. Adam was created to have God at the very center of his life. That's very obvious as we read through that. Everything's connected back to God. And God gave him one thing, one thing that he was not to do. And it's key, I believe, to understanding our purpose. Verse 16 and 17, I'm going to read again. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice God starts positive. Satan likes to start negative. God starts positive. I'm giving you freedom. You can eat of every tree. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's this one tree, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What's God doing? He's laying down rules, but he's protecting them. His rules are protecting them. If you eat of it, you're going to die. So don't eat of it. And all through the text, we see God giving command, God placing them, God providing for them. We see there's a relationship. And in these two verses, we see what the relationship is supposed to be built on. Trust. God's just saying, just believe me. Just trust me. If you eat of it, you'll die. Don't do this. If you do it, you'll die. What's, what's, in, what, what's at the bed level there? Trust me. You, if we don't trust him, we're going to eat of it. We're going to die. Right? Trust me, he's saying. Believe and do as I say. Trust and obey. And God desires a relationship with people built on trust. He wants us to trust him. Man was created for relationship with God in which he is God, and we're the ones who are dependent, we're the ones who are subordinate, trusting him, obeying him, knowing him, loving him. Ultimately, what are we doing? We're worshiping him. We are the dependent ones. We're the ones needing life. We're the ones needing provision. And we're relying on, we're trusting him, and we're, we're walking by faith in him. We're worshiping the Lord God. That's the picture you see here. See, whose garden is Adam tending? Whose air is Adam breathing? Who gave him life? Who gave him a wife? Who gave all these things? Adam and Eve are image bearers, which means what? They bear and reflect the image of another. Just in the very term, Imago Dei, the fact that you bear the image of someone else tells you you're not created for yourself. You're created to bear someone else's image. You're created for another. One greater than us. Someone bigger than us. We have been created for the glory of God, for His purposes, to know Him and to love Him and to worship Him unto His glory, to make much of Him. It's God they represent, not themselves. It's God we're to represent, not ourselves. They're meant to trust and obey to the glory of God. This runs throughout the Bible, Isaiah 43, 7. God says, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You want to know why you're here? I would sum it up this way. To know, enjoy, and bring glory to God by walking obediently with Him in a relationship built on trust. And that is to happen in the context of community. 
because it's not good that man should be alone. It, it's intrinsic in the details here that we're, we're doing this in community. To know God, enjoy God, and bring glory to God by walking obediently with God in a relationship built on trust. And doesn't it make sense that if God gave us life and its purpose is found in relationship with Him and living life by faith and living to His glory, that all the parts of life would be connected to that purpose as well? A while back, I took my car, I was doing something, had to get it looked at, and they said, uh, they went and they fixed the part, I took it home, and it was still doing the same thing. Took it back to them, and they had this thing for like a day, right? And they're trying to figure out why did fixing it not fix it. And it turned out it, it needed a part made by the actual manufacturer, not an aftermarket part or a knockoff part, right, which is what they typically want to use, right? GE made this, but so-and-so makes a product, and we'll stick it on there. It's cheaper, right? And so that's what they tend to do. That did, it eliminated the problem, but it wouldn't eliminate the symptom because the other, the other part didn't fit as well, and this was a problem throughout the make. It needed a part made by the manufacturer, and that seems like a convenient thing for the manufacturer, right? that it needs their expensive part. But it also makes sense that the one who created, who made the car, knows all the parts and makes all the parts and how they fit together so the car works right. And it makes sense that the one who has created life has a design for all of its components. God has gifted us in life and in every sphere, every gift is meant to be lived with God at the very center. Let's think about some of these gifts that are right there in Genesis 2, the gift of friendship. Community, relationship. God says it's not good that man should be alone. That's the first time in all the creation account that God noted something is not good. He's saying, we need another one. He, need, he needs community. He needs friendship is at the core of that. Remember, God's a trinity. He exists in community, perfect community. God didn't create us out of need. He didn't need fellowship with us. He wasn't lonely. There's no deficiency in the Godhead. But he did create us, and we need community, and we need relationship, and we need friendship. And God's given us that gift, and relationships and friendship and all that works best when we're doing it how God would say do it, because he created it. God gave us the gifts of sex and marriage and children. Marriage is the pinnacle of God's human relationship, as man is the pinnacle of creation. Marriage, we see, is God's idea. In verses 18 through 25 there of chapter 2, it's God's idea. It's a gift. He gave Adam a gift, a helper. And we see man now leaves parents and holds fast to his wife. The, the wife is now the chief concern. Each other is now the chief concern. A, a new family unit, not dis disconnected from the other, but a new family unit is emerging. New priorities are being developed. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's pointing us to children. Children are, are God's idea. They're a blessing from the Lord. And we see here, that sex is designed to take place in marriage where they are told to be fruitful and multiply. In the context of the marriage relationship, the one flesh union, he says the two shall become one flesh, that's, that's consummated in the intimacy of the sex union. See, if the Bible's true, if God created marriage, and as we see here, it's designed for one man and one woman, not one man and four women, not two men, not two women. I don't mean that to be ugly or snarky. I really don't. If the Bible be true and that's how God's designed it, and if the sexual relationship and intimacy is meant to take place in that context, 
It's not just that anything outside of that is wrong, which it certainly is. But it's not just that. If that's the way God's designed it to work, it's not just wrong, it's harmful to, your, to you, to human flourishing. It's anti-human flourishing. It's not best if God really knows what's best. If the Bible be true, this has to be true. We see God also, though, he gave more than these. He gave the gift of work. You say, gift of work, right? What about the gift of vacation time? Works pre-fall. Some people think, well, ever since the fall happened and Adam sinned, we have to go to work. Wrong. Sometimes works might be more difficult, more painful, might be harder to find it, might be harder to do it. You might not enjoy it. That's because of the fall. But work itself is a gift from God, not part of the curse. It's a blessing. Verse 28, God blessed them and told them in chapter 1, God told them to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. Subdue carries the idea of getting all the potential out of the earth, maximizing the potential. That's what it means to subdue the earth. I love that. God looks at him and he says, go subdue the earth, maximize the potential of this earth. And you are sitting in a chair that is the result of man subduing the earth. You are holding smartphones that is the result of man subduing the earth. You drove here in vehicles that is the result of man subduing the earth. Getting the most out of its potential. In chapter 2, verse 15, God places Adam in the garden and says, work it and keep it. He gives him a particular job. Because we're to bring order as image bearers to various areas as we exercise dominion and we subdue. We're bringing order. And our work, whatever you do, ultimately is about exercising dominion and subduing the earth and being a steward of God's creation. So well, I'm in the business field. You help create jobs. You help with economic development. It's part of it. I'm in the medical field. People create medicines, they apply medicines, they cultivating their field. The, the human body, medicine, all kind, med, medical field touches all kinds of areas of cultivating God's earth. I'm a teacher. You're cultivating the human mind. Well, I work in the home. I'm a stay-at-home mom. You're bringing organization and order and education and cultivating mind to lives that are in the home at very formidable stages. Whether you work outside the home or inside the home, God has a plan for what you're doing and it's part of how he made you and he wants you to glorify him and him to be at the very center of your work. He made rest too. We don't see it here in this text, but he gave it as an example when he worked six days and he took a day off. Not because he needed rest. God wasn't tired. But he modeled for us the importance of having rhythm in life, of work and rest. And the point is simple. We are created for God to know Him, to trust Him, and worship Him. And we are meant to live in relationship with Him, with others, to His glory, in all the different spheres of life. In our relationships, our sexuality, our marriages, our work lives, everything about us is meant to be lived God's way for God's glory. That's God's design. When you end chapter 2 of Genesis, the man and woman are naked and unashamed. I think it was Martin Luther said, Nothing tells us that the damage sin has done other than to read that verse and to think what that would look like today. It seems absurd to us that two people are naked and unashamed, right? We think they're crazy nowadays, right? And the moment the fall happens, man, they're covering up and they're hiding and, and they're ashamed. 
But at this point, they had done nothing wrong. They had never sinned against God. All is well. The world is a peaceful place designed for the glory of God and for the goodness of man. And shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, is all over the world at that time. But we know that's not the case today. Now, some of you are not going to be able to see this, and it's going to be on the screen for you. But I want you to see that this is something you can draw yourself. We've been talking about God's design this morning. God has a design for everything. He's made the world to work a certain way. He's got a plan for marriage, and he's got a plan for sexuality. He's got a plan for work, and he's got a plan for relationships. He's got a plan for life. And we are to live according to his design. And that's when things work well. And that's when life's lived to his glory. That's where peace and joy and all those things are found. But we know in our world today, we see a lot of brokenness and we see a lot of messed up stuff. And we see a lot of people not living according to God's design. We personally have experienced this in our own lives. And that is because of this thing we call sin. There came a point in time we're going to talk about next week as we dive deeper that Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. They departed from God's design and said, I'll act as God. We'll be our own God. And ever since then, ever since then, we have inherited a sin nature from our forefathers, from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We're all born with a sin nature. And we we're just bent towards sin. We don't have to be taught how to sin. We just have this nature bent towards sin. So we're born over here. And we constantly make choices throughout our lives to ignore God's design and depart from it. To know what he says about morality. To know what he says about marriage. To know what he says about sex. To know what he says about obeying him and trusting him. To know what he says about all these things. And to depart. And we sin. And because of all this sin in the world... We experience something called brokenness. I have to be careful spelling that one. It's got two ends. Throws me off. Brokenness. That's where sin leads. And we look around the world and we can see brokenness everywhere. We see poverty and injustice and divorce and loneliness and depression and just pain and suffering all over the world. And we've experienced it personally. Every single person in this room could name some area in their life where they know they departed God's design and experienced brokenness because of it. The good thing about brokenness is it shows us and it wakes us up to the need for something more. Something's wrong. And so we start looking for ways to depart brokenness. We start trying to, to get out. People do this different ways. Some people dive into morality and they say, I'll just turn over a new leaf and I'll be better. Maybe if they grew up in church especially. Or I'll try a new religion, right? I'll pray more. Sometimes it's good things like that. Sometimes people, I'll just drown myself in drugs and alcohol. So I'll just dive into another romantic relationship. I'll just end this marriage and go find another one. And they just go, we're just looking for a way out. We're looking for peace. We're looking for a way out of the brokenness. The good news of the Bible is God has created a way out. God has given a way out. And it's always been God's plan to have a way out. And it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That God came to us. That God sent his son into a broken world. The son of God, who the Bible says is sinless, who was born of a virgin and was all God and at the same time all man, the God man. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around. The Messiah the one promise throughout the Old Testament, 
the anointed one who comes into the world, and the Bible says he lives a sinless life. He's tempted like me and you, but never sins. And then when he's about 33 years old, he goes to a cross. He has some trials happen, some mocking happens. He's run through some courts. They accuse him of all sorts of things that he didn't do. And this innocent person, the Son of God, is crucified there on a cross. And he bleeds and he dies. And the Bible says and teaches that as Jesus is dying on the cross, something very important is happening there. He bears our sin. He bears our guilt. The one who is without sin bears our sin, bears our guilt. And the punishment we deserve, the wrath, the judgment we deserve is poured out on him instead of on us. And God allows Jesus to take our place, sends Jesus to take our place, and Jesus willingly takes our place. And the only one who could take our place because he was sinless and he was God and he was man. And he goes and he stands there. And he's able because he's God, he's able, and he's sinless, he's able to reach out and he's able to grab hold of the holiness of God. And because he's man and because he's perfectly human, he's able to reach out and grab humanity and bear our sin, and on the cross die in our place. And the Bible says three days later he rose from the dead in victory over sin, over death, over hell, and for our justification, showing that the check didn't bounce, that when Jesus says it is finished, it was finished. God has proven it by raising him from the dead. He's alive. And he ascends into heaven and he promises, I'm coming back for my church. Many people have heard that story. Most of you, maybe all of you, have heard that story. Knowing that story is not enough. You've got to do something with that story. And the Bible says, instead of going our own way, we've got to repent and believe. We've got to turn out of our sin and turn from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repent means. It means to change. It means to turn. It means in our mind and in our heart we turn away from sin and away from especially unbelief and we turn to God in Christ and we believe this gospel. We believe this good news. We rest, we rely, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we're changed from the inside out. God changes us here when we believe the gospel. He gives us a new heart that desires to love him and obey him. He puts his spirit inside of us so we can love him and obey him. And we become new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and we begin a new life of recovering and pursuing God's design. We begin to recover and pursue God's design. We care, once again, about what God says and about how God says we're supposed to live life. And so the rest of our lives are spent taking this book and figuring out how to obey it and to live it and to apply it as we recover and pursue God's design. And the image that has so been distorted by the fall that we're going to talk about next week, the image that has so been warped and distorted because of the fall, it's still there, we're still made in His image. It's being restored as we believe the gospel and recover and pursue God's design day by day as we become like Jesus. That image is being restored. As we become like Christ, who perfectly images God in every way, who is God in the flesh. So here's the question this morning. The question is this. You can look at the screen, hopefully the full diagram's up there. If you're in the front, you can see this. Is where are you in the picture? Are we still here? 
Yeah, we all still sin, but for some of us, we're still in this. Our aim is maybe still away from God's design, and we keep landing in brokenness, and we keep searching, and we keep looking and trying to figure it out. And I'm here to tell you this morning, there is good news. There is a way out, and it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for some maybe today, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Maybe you've prayed. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've joined the church. But if a change didn't happen there where you begin to recover and pursue God's, God's design, you didn't repent and believe the gospel. You did one of these things. You added religion. You added church. You added good works. You added trying to turn over a new leaf. But you didn't repent and believe the gospel. If you didn't, have, you didn't get a new heart, you didn't repent and believe the gospel. Have you repented and believed the gospel? Maybe this morning you're a believer and you've repented and believed the gospel, but right now you're not recovering and pursuing God's design with the tenacity that you know you should be. And there's sin in your life because we still struggle, we still battle sin in this life because we're in a broken world. Maybe this morning there's things in your life that you need to confess and you need to depart from as you continue to repent and believe the gospel. But maybe here this morning you look and you see and you know a whole lot of people or one person three people or 30 people who are all over here who need this. And God takes you and me and he asks us and he sends us and he thrusts us as we believe the gospel and begin to recover and pursue his design. He thrusts us back into a broken world to take that message. Maybe there's people you need to begin praying for right now that God would give you the boldness to share the message of the gospel. Let's pray.